We are in Ephesians chapter one. Uh, If you do not have a Bible with you, the words, the scripture is printed on your sermon guide in your worship folder. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. But he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. When I put my two-year-old son to bed, he goes to sleep with two dogs, Duke and Penny. Duke is uh, the dog of uh, our friends, the share-offs that he sees in our neighborhood and who go here. And Penny is my brother's dog in Tennessee, who he visited, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And this is how it works. So he goes to bed, make sure dogs are in hand, and then I turn the light out and I close the door and I walk out. And inevitably, night to night, we'll hear some fussing, right, which is fairly normal, and usually the, the fussing will go away and he goes to sleep. But certain nights, the fussing just kind of escalates and it starts to crescendo. And and we know by this time, uh, when it gets above a certain crescendo that something tragic has happened, that he has lost Duke and Penny. And so I walk into the room and I turn the light on and guess where Duke and Penny are? Right next to him, on the bed, within reach. But he can't see them until I turn the light on. They're right there. They're they're before his very eyes. But until I turn that light on, he can't see him. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he prays in this passage, in verse 17, that God would give these, these believers in Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That word enlightened means to shine upon or to make known. The picture of my son, when the light comes on and it shines upon the very thing that's right in front of it. There's a story in the Old Testament that captures this beautifully. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. And it's about the the nation of of Aram that continues to attack Israel. And what would happen is uh, God would give Elisha, who was a prophet in the nation of Israel, uh, Aram's war plans. And so Elisha would tell Israel and they would 
keep winning victory after victory because they knew what the battle plans were of the enemy. And uh, the king of Aram finds this out, that Elisha's getting this news and, and delivering it to Israel. And so he sends an army out to, to kill Elisha. And one morning, Elisha's servant gets up, steps outside and looks out, and there is the army of Aram surrounding them. And he runs back in scared and he says to Elijah, Elijah, what do we do? What do we do? And Elisha says something fairly odd to his servant. He says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah's servant's looking around. Wait a minute, it's just you and me, Elisha. And then Elisha prays this. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And God did just that. And Elijah's servant looks up and on the hills surrounding this enemy army are the armies of the angels of God. His eyes were open. When he went out the first time and he looked and he was scared, guess what? That same army, invisible army, angels of God were there. He just couldn't see them. And so Elijah prayed, opened his eyes, and God opened his eyes, and he saw what was right before him. Don't we need our eyes open this morning? To the beauty of what's right before us, we looked at it last week, verses 3 to 14. Every spiritual blessing, adoption, redemption, the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance, all these beautiful truths. And now Paul prays, now God, would you open their eyes? to see what's right before them. So the question is, what do you need your eyes opened to? What do you need your eyes opened to? In verse 18 and verse 19, Paul lists three things. His hope, his inheritance, and his power. So we start with, with hope. You need your eyes opened to hope that you may know, verse 18, what is the hope to which he has called you? Now, what is hope? Paul actually explains it well in one of his other letters, shows up in Hebrews as well. Romans chapter eight, when Paul is talking about future glory and how the, the future glory of the new world should outweigh our present sufferings and difficulty, he says this in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, hope is seeing the unseen, the unseen future. Hope takes this unseen future that we're sure of, all right, it's not wishful thinking, that we're, there's a conviction and a confidence and there, an assurance of this unseen future, and hope brings it into the present. You see, what you believe about the future will determine how you live today. What you believe about the future will determine how you live today, and hope takes that unseen future and it brings it into the present. Many of you know that I love to backpack, specifically the Appalachian Trail. Haven't done it in a few years. 
Things have been busy around the house, but my friend and I still have hopes of maybe not hiking the entire Appalachian Trail, all 2,100 miles of it or so. That was what we set out to do. Uh, life has brought us to some reality. But here's what we would do and what we'll continue to do at some point. When we go to hike the trail, we'll pick a 30 to 40 mile section of the trail. And we'll go drop a car off along a road where the, trails, where the trail crosses and then have someone drive us back you know, 30 or 40 miles to the point where we wanna start. And then we'll begin to hike over three or four days to get to the end. And inevitably on that last day, Days one and two are great. And then we get that last day and it's, it's rough. We're weary, we're tired, my heels are blistered, my thighs are burning. But something very intriguing happens every time. As we approach that road where the car is planted, though we can't see the road or see the car, we start to hear the rumble of the car engines and the trucks that are passing on the road. We start to hear the noise from the road and it does something amazing. Suddenly, I don't feel my blisters on my heels as much and my thighs don't burn as much. And I actually start to walk a little faster and my friend and I, our, our conversation starts bubbling up again. Why? Because we know we're approaching the finish line. We can hear the noise. You know, the scriptures say that when Jesus Christ returns, that he's gonna return with a loud trumpet sound. You know, we won't have to guess when he returns. It will be loud and clear. Hope is such a sure conviction and confidence in future glory and his return that you begin to hear off in the distance the trumpet sound. And you begin to live your life accordingly, that that unseen future is brought into the present. Viktor Frankl, he was incarcerated in a German concentration camp in World War II. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he describes what he saw in that concentration camp with prisoners of war. And how some prisoners of war withered and, and, and died and how others would press on. And he noted the difference as he told this story about one of his friends who was a prisoner of war. And one night, uh, he had a dream. He had a dream that he was gonna be released, that the camp was gonna be liberated on March 30th. And he took this dream as a, a vision from God, and he was sure it was gonna happen. And so he had much energy and much vitality more so than any of the other prisoners of war, Frankel would say. And as it approached March 30th, as it got closer to that date, and it became clear that the camp was probably not going to be liberated, things started to change for this prisoner of war. March 29th, Frankel says he developed a high fever. March 30th, unconscious. March 31st, he died. Why? because he lost hope. In fact, Viktor Frankl writes it this way, the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that he expected liberate, the expected liberation did not come and he was severely disappointed. 
This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the typhus infection. Hope, that sure conviction, that confidence that Jesus is coming back to get his children and such a sure confidence that you can hear in the distance the noise, the trumpet sound, which impacts how you live today. So what do you need your eyes open to? First, the hope, the hope, his hope of future glory. Second, his inheritance. Verse 18, eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we just talked about last week in verses three to 14, inheritance. And we talked about the fact that in Christ, you're a spiritual billionaire. That when you're married to Christ, everything that's his becomes yours. That you're rich. That you have this amazing inheritance. And yet that's not the inheritance that is being spoken of here in verse 18. Look at it. What does it say? The riches of his glorious inheritance. This isn't speaking of what you get. This is speaking of what God gets, his inheritance. You say, what's his inheritance? The glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance is you. He gets you. You're his treasured possession. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can God put such extraordinary value on me with the sin, the shame, and the guilt that I deal with day to day? How in the world can I be his treasured possession with the way that I lived or what I did yesterday or the day before or this past week? And the answer is, he sees you in Christ. He sees you in Christ. Which means that what is true of Jesus is true of you. Now let that sit for a second. What is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. So what's true of Jesus? Matthew chapter three, after Jesus gets baptized and he comes up out of the water, what does God the Father say? He says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God says, this is my boy. And guess what? If you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, that same affirmation, that same extraordinary value, that same love is spoken over you. That's my boy. That's my girl. Zephaniah 3.17 the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Believe that? Do you believe that because you're in Christ, apart from how you're living your life, that if you are in Christ, God rejoices over you. He sings over you. He says, that's my boy, that's my girl. 
You're his inheritance. You're his treasure. Listen to this story told in a, in a book of compiled stories uh, called The Christian Pioneer, probably written sometime in the 1800s. Listen to this. I remember once standing by the surging billows all one weary day and watching for hours a father struggling beyond in the breakers for the life of his son. They came slowly toward the breakers on a piece of wreck. And as they came, waves turned over the piece of float and they were lost to view. Presently, we saw the father come to the surface and clamor alone to the wreck and then saw him plunge off into the waves and thought he was gone. But in a moment, he came back again, holding his boy. Presently, they struck another wave and over they went. And again, they repeated the process. Again, they went over and again, the father rescued his son. By and by, as they swung nearer the shore, they caught on a snag just out beyond where we could reach them. And for a little time, the waves went over them there till we saw the boy in the father's arms, hanging down in helplessness and knew they must be saved soon or be lost. I shall never forget the gaze of that father. As we drew him from the devouring waves, still clinging to his son, he said, that's my boy, that's my boy. And half frantic, as we dragged them up the bank, he cried all the time, that's my boy, that's my boy. In Jesus Christ, that is God's song over you. Maybe you've had an unearthly mother or an earthly father speak affirmation over you. Maybe you've had a, a mother or father say, that, that's my boy, and then those, those words that just penetrate deeply, I am proud of him. Or that's my girl, I am proud of her. Now, some of you have never gotten that. You were raised in a very broken family. Maybe you've never heard that. Even if you've heard it from an earthly parent, even if you've heard that kind of affirmation, which we all need, we need that affirmation, we seek that affirmation, we were designed by God to receive that affirmation. That even if you've received it, it is nothing compared, nothing to the day when you see Jesus face to face and you see the delight in his eye. The sheer delight in his eye over you. And you say, what difference does this make? What difference does it make when you're living in his delight as his inheritance and his treasured possession? Well, we could spend, I imagine, the rest of the day. But let me speak to one. When you're living in his delight, you become much less of a critical person. You know, being critical is not hard. It's not hard. You don't have to, to work hard to be critical. Uh, that, that's the native language of the broken, sinful flesh, is to be critical. And here's what happens when you're being critical. It is, in a very twisted way, it's your attempt to get affirmation by elevating yourself, by lowering someone else. And, you know, it, it actually, in those moments that you're critical, at the moment, it can feel good. Why? Because you're achieving affirmation 
at least briefly, at someone else's expense. That's why being critical is so easy and so attractive. But what you're really seeking in, when your heart is, is criticizing, what your heart is seeking is affirmation. When you live underneath the delight of the Savior, when you understand you're his treasured possession, when he is spewing out his affirmation over you and on you and you are receiving it, you become much less of a critical person. The degree to which you're living under his delight or in his delight is the degree to which you are not critical. And what you'll find is when you understand that you're his, his, his inheritance and treasured possession and you begin living out of that, what happens is the critical words start to get replaced by generous and lavish words of affirmation and encouragement of others. What do you need your eyes open to? Hope, his inheritance, and finally his power. His power, verse 19. So eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, verse 18. And then verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? I don't know if you caught it or not there, but Paul goes absolutely over the top to describe God's power here. In fact, he uses three synonyms to describe this amazing power that is towards you. Now, before we unpack how this power is manifested towards you, I wanna talk about the source of power because that's where it all begins. In verses 20 to 23, he describes it, what the source of the power is. It's the same power that God used or the power that God used to raise Jesus physically from the dead. It's the power that God used to ascend him into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. It's the power that God has given Christ to be ruler over all things. And it's the power that God used to, to subject everything, everything in the world underneath his feet. And the most amazing part of that description is that it's past tense. Past tense. Paul says it's, it's in this age and in the one to come. You say, well, obviously, when Jesus returns, he's gonna be ruler over all. The new heavens, the new earth, everything's subject to him. But the shocker of this passage is that, sure, it's gonna be in the future, but it's reality now. That everything is underneath Jesus now. In this age, that Jesus is in full control of this world and of your life. And that God's power, verse 19, his power toward us who believe is an active power that God exerts or exercises through his son towards his church. Now, how does that power manifest itself? We can talk about power towards us, but what does that mean? It manifests itself in two ways, right? Spiritually and physically. Let me start off with spiritually, how this power towards us manifests itself. We're gonna get to it next week in Ephesians 2.1. But it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 3, verses 
10 and 11 say there's no one righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. I'll, I'll state the obvious here. Dead people can't do anything. You were born into this world spiritually dead. If this morning you are in Christ, God did it. You didn't. God did it. Through his amazing power, he made you alive in Jesus Christ. Whether you have a radical conversion story as an adult or whether you, your story is, I never remember a day apart from Christ, everyone is born dead spiritually. And God, by his power, raised you from the dead and gave you new life. He did it. Now, what amazing assurance that brings. I want you to think about this. What amazing assurance it brings. You say, well, Keith, what if I wander away from God? How are you gonna wander away from him if you never wandered to him? He did it. You're in Christ. Jesus will never let you go. John 10, 28 says it this way. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Who gave us eternal life? We didn't do it. <laughs> Jesus said, I gave them eternal life. Through my power, they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If no one or nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, then how do you think you can wiggle out of his hand? How? I mean, the assurance of God's power towards you spiritually in your salvation is unbelievable. And when you rest in that, it will change your life. <laughs> It'll bring you alive in ways you never imagined. To have that kind of security, that kind of assurance. The power that God used to save you is the power that he uses to sustain you and to keep you in him. Now, the second way that Jesus' power manifests itself, right? It's power towards us who believe is, is physically. Let me speak to this for a moment. The context into which Paul writes here is the same context as John writes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation that we just finished, although many years later. It was a church under the power of the Roman Empire. It was a church in a culture full of magical practice, astrological beliefs. I'll sum it up this way. People had an extraordinary fear of hostile spiritual powers. That's why Paul is writing this. Now, in our day, does some of that manifest itself or show up in that? Some yes, some no. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, which we're gonna get to later in Ephesians 6, and the occult, and magic, and all of that. There's some of it in the West. We don't see it as much. But here's what's absolutely the same, and that is fear. That is fear. Fear of being out of control. Fear of feeling helpless in the hands of sin and brokenness and evil. You see, at the heart of Fear is the fear of losing something. 
What Paul is saying here is that God's power toward us takes away fear. And the reason it does is because fear is the fear of losing something, fear of losing a child, fear of losing your health, fear of losing your job, fear of losing your financial security, fear of losing your house, fear of losing a friend. And what God's power says is that whatever you lose in this world, you will get it back in new and unimaginable ways in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new world. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, but resurrection is not just consolation, it's restoration. We get it all back, the love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength goes on to say, the most rapturous delights you have ever had in the beauty of a landscape or in the pleasure of food or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace are like dewdrops. are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see God face to face. That is what we are in for, nothing less. And according to the Bible, that glorious beauty and our enjoyment of it has been immeasurably enhanced by Christ's redemption of us from evil and from death. You see, God's power towards you takes away fear and empowers you to risk your life in in very tiny ways and very big ways for the sake of his kingdom. Because his power assures you of everything in the new world that your soul longs for. You know, of the 10 people that were treated for Ebola in the United States after the outbreak of the Ebola virus in Africa, five of them were Christian missionaries who were working in these Ebola-affected areas in Africa. At least another three were Christians as well. And what we learned there is that there were missionaries and medical workers that walked into the face of death to help people who were sick at risk of their own lives. And you say, why? How? Well, one of the doctors that got treated in the States for Ebola said this, I had no clue what was going to happen. Of course, I knew what the outcome could be. And yet there was no fear. There was just this sense of the Lord's peace and presence. And I thought whether I live or whether I die, it's going to be okay. Now let me translate okay and tell you what this doctor meant by okay. The Holy Spirit had opened her eyes to see what she had right in front of her. This hope of glory that Ebola couldn't take away. This delight of the Father as a treasured possession and inheritance that she was. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ that promised and guaranteed 
her own resurrection. And because the Spirit had opened her eyes to those truths that were right in front of her, then and only then was she empowered to freely give her life away for the sake of God's kingdom. And might our eyes be opened in the same way that we in tiny little ways, maybe in big ways, be willing freely to give our lives away for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, your power that is at work in us is amazing. And what you have given us in your son Jesus is beyond anything that we could imagine. And yet, even with it right in front of us, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to open our eyes to see what we have. This hope of glory, this absolute delight of the Father. Jesus, one day we're gonna see you face to face and the delight in your eyes is gonna be amazing. And yet we want to live in that delight now. We want to live in light of your resurrection now. And Father, as we go to the Lord's Supper, would you speak to us through this meal? Would you open our eyes through this meal to what we have? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.